I love Acts chapter 12. It's a real humorous story, as we'll see. But that humour starts in, in a fairly dark place. James is dead. James, with his brother John, had been known as the sons of Zebedee. He'd been called when he was a fisherman back in Galilee, along with Andrew and Peter. They'd been the original four disciples of Jesus. They'd been there the whole way. James and John tended to have hot tempers and they'd shoot their mouths off. Jesus had called them not the sons of Zebedee, but the sons of thunder. But now James was dead. And it wasn't just that James was dead. It looked like Peter was going to be next. The situation seemed quite desperate. The enemy of the church was a nasty chap. He was Herod Agrippa. Now, just a little bit of history here. This isn't the Herod of the Christmas story. That's Herod the Great, his grandfather. Herod the Great had been the one who tried to kill Jesus right at the start in, in, in infancy and had killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He was a nasty dictator. Then there had been his nephew, the, the nephew of Herod the Great, who had been the one who had tried to be, or, or who was involved in the trial of Jesus. You'll remember Pilate arrested Jesus, but then he sent him to Herod and sent him back as Jesus was tried and then executed. And now we have Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Agrippa was a bit more of a politician than a thug. He he had grown up in Rome, actually. He'd grown up with the Emperor Caligula, who was another nasty piece of work. But Herod had sort of learned how to keep on his right side. And he'd kept on the right side of the next emperor, Claudius. And then he'd managed to be given bit by bit the whole of his grandfather's empire until he ruled over the whole of what we now call the Holy Land. Here we find him true to character. He wants to keep in with the Jewish people, the politician that wants to follow the crowd, very, very dangerous. And Luke really underlines the hopelessness of the situation as he paints the picture for where Peter found himself. He was in prison. It wasn't just any prison. It was almost certainly the Antonia Fortress, the big fortress that the Romans had built right next to the temple. And there Peter was being held by guards, Four groups of four guards, two chains, two guards. It was so much that was round Peter, as if Luke is underlying for us, this is an impossible situation. Humanly speaking, it's all over. So we have the murderous regime of Herod with the power of the sword that's already killed one person and going to kill another. And against that, we have the church. A little church. Well, we don't know how many people there were left in Jerusalem by that time. Many had scattered after Stephen had been killed. But they seemed to have been meeting in the house of Mary. Mary, who was the mother of John Mark. John Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas. It was almost a family affair. The house Mary had must have been fairly sizable that they could have a whole meeting of people in there. And it seems to have become the base for at least part of the Jerusalem church. Mary is rich enough to have a servant too. So we have the empire and we have the house group. Which one will win this battle that Luke spells out for us at the beginning? Of course, we know that it's not that simple. It's not just the empire versus the little house group as if it were Goliath 
versus David, but just as with the story of David and Goliath, the key thing is the power of God. Herod thought he had life and death in his hands. He thought he could kill when he wanted. By the end of the chapter, he is the one that is dead. Herod, who had the arrogance to allow people to say, I am a God, who by the end of it would find to his cost that there only was one God and he was in control. Prisons, if you ever get out of them, can take a long time. We know the stories of Auschwitz, uh, sorry, of, of, of Alcatraz and Kolditz and the, the hardness of people escaping from them. Or the Shawshank Redemption, if you've seen that film, where it takes 20 years to dig out with a spoon. But this story is about the God who can open the iron gates, let the chains fall off, and it all happens just in an instant. If we're going to learn about prayer from this passage, and I think we can learn much, it might simply be this. It starts by simply acknowledging a reality that it doesn't matter about the problems that we're going to tell God about. And it doesn't matter about the feeble strength and resources that we have that we're going to lay before him. What matters is that we start with worship. We start with recognising that we are in the hands of God. That's why the Lord's Prayer starts not with give us or we need or we're weak or strengthen us. It starts with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If there was one simple truth that we might take from a passage like this, it's simply this. He has the whole world in his hands. That simple truth that we speak to children, and yet perhaps it's the truth that we need to allow to sink deeper into who we are as Christians, how we pray as Christians, how we live as Christians, as we look at the difficulties we face as a church, as a nation, as a family, as whoever we are, start off by simply saying that he has the whole world in his hands. Sometimes we think that we have to control everything, we have to have the answer to everything, we need to find the solution for everything. But the truth is we need to start by recognising that there is only one person who controls all things. It doesn't mean that things will always work out the way that we want them to work out when we pray like that. It didn't for the church. No doubt they prayed for James and James was dead. No doubt they prayed for Stephen and Stephen was dead. But as they began to pray, something else began to happen. That deep sense that they could trust in that God. I love what it says in verse 4 as it begins the story. Or, or it begins the story. Or ver, ver, sorry, verse 5 and 6, where it starts off by saying, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying to God for him. The night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping in chains between two soldiers. Peter was sleeping as the people prayed. It's an amazing thing that here was Herod with all that power 
but he couldn't even make Peter lose sleep because he knew whose hands he was in. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the people were praying as Peter was sleeping. I've heard too many stories of people going through really difficult times. And as they knew that the church was praying, that great sense of peace, come what may, that great sense of peace. John Christostenum, who's one of the early commentators in this passage says, it is beautiful that as Paul sings hymns in prison, Peter sleeps. There is nothing to be worried about, come what may, in the morning. And it's not a sort of optimism. Sometimes people will say, well, I I, I won't worry about what's going to happen because it'll all turn out fine. Peter is not optimistic. Even Even when the angel comes and starts to release him from prison, Peter doesn't believe it's happening. He doesn't think this is what's going to happen. He is ready to die. And the church, even as they're praying for him, they're not optimistic either. Even when Peter comes to the door and he's there, they don't believe it. But what they are given is this sense of peace by committing it to God no matter what happens. You know that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus, with that line, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I love the honesty of that, that it's not a case of the hymn writer saying, oh, well, we better pray because then we'll have peace. He's saying we don't do it. And that's why we don't have that peace. And yet time and time again, those of us that are Christians will testify that when we have really come and committed things to God so often, there has been a peace that come what may, we are in his hands. This passage has so many hilarious moments in it. Peter is sleeping soundly. The problem is he's sleeping too soundly. Verse 7, we're told that an angel of the Lord appears and a light shines in the cell and he has to strike Peter in the side to wake him up. The echoes of this verse are, are, are really an echo of Bethlehem. You remember the story that the shepherds in the field and the angel appears and the glory of the Lord shone around and they were sore afraid. Well, here's all that glory of the angel appearing in this prison cell, all this light. And Peter snores. So peaceful that he's not even able to wake up. And the angel, we're told, um, pokes him. In fact, the Greek word for sort of nudges him actually says strikes him, which actually means sort of give him a good slapping. Wake up, Peter. And then the angel almost has to treat him like a small child or or, or like a person who's got up who hasn't had enough coffee that morning. Put on your shoes, put on your coat, get ready, get all ready, get your shoes on, get dressed, and then we'll go outside. And Peter all this time still thinks it's a dream. He walks past the guards that have fallen asleep. The gate itself opens out to him and it's not until all these miracles have happened around him he begins to dawn upon him that this is not a dream. He's not imagining this. This really is happening. It is literally for Peter all too good to be true. And then he runs to the church. And now the story does something that's very interesting because 
he begins to have us laugh at this little church. The fugitive is out of prison. He looks around furtively. There'll be people out looking for him. He runs quietly to the door of the house where he might find somewhere to go and he begins to knock on it, fearful of detection. Knock, 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 knock. It's Peter. Let me in. Let me in. And it's almost comical what happens here. Peter has managed to burst out with God's power of the Antonia fortress with all these guards, but he can't even get in the door of the church. Knock, 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 knock. Let me in. And Rhoda, the servant, comes to the door. Who is it? It's Peter. Let me in. We're praying for Peter. I'm really here. Oh, I'll tell everybody. And Rhoda runs into the house to tell everybody. Peter's still knocking on the door. Rhoda, you didn't open the door. And then she goes into the meeting. And she says to the meeting of people there, Peter's at the door. And their first thought, of course, is, shh, we're busy praying for Peter. But he's at the door. Well, that's impossible. He's in prison. We're praying for him. That's the whole point. He's at the door. Well, it must be his ghost. Still all the time, Peter knocking on the door. Rhoda, let me in, let me in, let me in. You see, the problem here is that they're praying, but they have absolutely no expectation of what God is about to do. There are echoes here, perhaps also, of the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead and yet the woman don't understand it all, so they go to the tomb, don't they? They look in. They meet him. They think he's a gardener. They don't understand what's going on. They don't believe what has happened. And then as it begins to dawn on them, they run to tell the rest of the disciples. And Luke tells us, Luke 24 verse 11, that they don't believe the woman because they think they're talking nonsense. Men sometimes have a habit of doing that, not believing the woman when God has given them this message. There's something also in this passage about humility for those of us who are feeling that we're leaders or we're further on in the Christian faith, that sometimes it's through other people that God begins to speak. In that room, no doubt, praying were some of the apostles. In that room, no doubt, praying were folk who thought they were important in the church. And yet it was the servant girl who had the truth. She was literally the apostle of the good news coming to tell them what God is doing. I think sometimes we need to have that humility and that ability to laugh at ourselves as a church to realise that so often we just miss it. We get so serious about Kirk Session minutes or protocols of presbyteries or how the flowers are sorted out in the church or whatever else it is that we get hung up on. The way that things must be done and the protocols and the, the rules and the whatever else it is. And we just forget the simple thing. That we are looking for what God is doing and we should be excited by that and hopeful for it and expecting that. That we should be about listening and and seeing and delighting in it. And so I, I do think in this passage there is just that need, that there is always that need. That the church does not take itself too seriously because we are absurd in our lack of priorities, in our short sightedness, in our inability to see what God is doing around us so often. So often we approach prayer with no faith. We do not 
really expect that things will change. As a church, we need to start having that trust that actually we hold at the centre of our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that gospel is about anything, it is about things changing. Life's changing. People who didn't believe, like Saul, becoming people who do believe. Opposition that seemed so powerful, tumbling down, gates opening, possibilities happening, communities being changed by what we have to preach and to share. How do we as a church begin to think and expect more? And at the same time, I think here there is also this interesting encouragement as the Bible brings us face to face with people of real faith and then points out to us how they struggle too. I love that the stories of Peter and James and John and all the rest of it in the Gospels are full of the fact that they struggled. Peter walked on water, but then he sunk. Peter said the most ridiculous things. Peter denied Jesus. Peter ran away. James and John had this ridiculous argument on the road about who was the greatest. And it reminds us that the church too acts in absurd, failing ways, just like the disciples did. And here's the encouraging thing. As we read the book of Acts, we find the same stupidity among the followers of Jesus. It's not that we judge them. We recognise actually in ourselves and in our own lack of priorities and lack of faith and inability to see things and shutting one thing down because we're doing something else, that we too are those failing people. It brings us, of course, to realising that our hope isn't in us getting things right, but it is actually in God who holds the whole world in his hands. Prayer is vital for the church. If we genuinely, as a church, want to see D.L. St. Andrew's Church glorifying God, then we will need to learn to pray. There is never a place where a church has revived that prayer hasn't been at the centre of it. There is never a place where lives have been transformed that prayer hasn't been the centre of it. We are going to have to learn to pray. And can I really encourage you at the moment, if there is nothing else you do in these days, pray. There is a huge opportunity for us in this time of difficulty to pivot what we're doing as a church, to change and be relevant and find new ways, not just to be together and bless our members, but to make a difference to this community around us, to share this good news with a world that is at the moment asking all sorts of questions about what life is all about post-coronavirus. There is a huge opportunity here. But one of the things that we need to realise as we pray is that this isn't in our hands. It isn't even about how hard will we pray. As if prayer were some sort of technique, if we get it right and we get enough people doing it, saying the right words, then things will start to happen. It doesn't work like that. But rather to realise this, the, the God that we serve is a living God. The God that we serve is an active God. The God that we serve has sent his son to die for our sins that we might be forgiven and born again and have new life. The God 
that has done that and has risen his rose, risen his has risen his raised his son from the dead wants to transform the whole of creation and heal it. He has sent his Holy Spirit, his power among us. And it's not about simply believing harder in ourselves that we can do things. It's about realizing we can't. You know, one of the things that troubles me when I'm involved in schools these days is that as they try to address a a very real problem that many people have very low self-esteem and think they can achieve nothing, the schools sometimes bring in this mantra that if only you believe in yourself, you can do anything you want. One of the schools that I, I, I used to be going into had a big thing up that said, you know, believe and you can do anything. And the, the reality is that you can't. And when we tell people that all they have to have is, 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 is harder work or more faith in themselves, we, we, we stock up all sorts of problems. And the Christian belief is not if we believe in ourselves, if we only work harder, we can do all these things. It's not. It brings us face to face with stories like this, where even those people who are full of the gospel get things so badly wrong. Rather, the Christian faith is about our weakness meeting God's strength. Our fallibility meeting his knowledge and his power. Our failure to love meeting his unending love. The fact that we always will squabble and fight and sin, meeting his grace and forgiveness. Paul will write, I can do anything through him who gives me strength. Because the whole world is in the end of the day, not in our hands, nor should it be. But it is in God's hands. And that is what matters at the heart of this story. So friends, I I would say from this passage a number of things. First of all, realise as we pray who is in control. Secondly, have an openness to how absurd we can be about what's important and how blind we can be about what God is doing. The third is to take prayer really seriously Because as we begin to pray, not that we get it right, but we begin to remind ourselves that he has the whole world in his hands and we begin to surrender all those things that we care and we worry about to him. And then simply to believe that God can and will do amazing things, wonderful things through us when we open ourselves to him. It's not that it will always turn out the way that we want it to turn out. It didn't in this passage. It didn't for James. It didn't for Stephen. And yet somehow God would work through all of these things. The killing of Stephen had resulted in the spreading of the church and the spreading of the news, just as the saving of Peter would result in the gospel spreading further still. And so we find our peace as we are able to commit everything to God. And trust in him. As we move forward in these days, let us do that. I don't know where we will be a month from now or two months from now. But I do know that the God who's seen us this far will continue to see us through. Amen.